You're listening to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable, on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in and welcome to the show. Good evening and welcome to the original Rebels Roundtable, the official podcast of the Star Wars Report covering all things Rebels animated series. I'm Jonathan. This is part two of our season one roundup. And joining me to go over the highs, the lows, the goods, and the bads, we have Nathan. Hey, everyone. Jen. Hey, guys. Mark. Hey, just call me old Joe this episode. And who could forget Barrett? Hey, everybody. I'm not calling you that, Mark. So, last episode, we covered a lot of the characters, the heroes and the villains. Tonight, we're going to discuss some of the other characters that have an impact on the Rebels animated series. We're going to talk about some of the locations and the ships that we were introduced to. And finally, we're going to look at what we hope to see from Season 2. To start things off, there was a host of other characters which, you know, they weren't exactly good, they weren't exactly bad, but they certainly had an impact. And starting right from Spark of Rebellion, we had the character of Visago, who surprisingly, you know, was not a introduced and then kick off. He he stayed and was even in the second to the last episode of the season and certainly had an impact. And given how it left it, we're certainly going to see him in season two. What do, what do you think of a character like Visago? Anyone else get the Talone card vibe from the guy? I mean, he's got the broken horn and isn't he like the, the leader of the broken horn syndicate or something like that? I didn't get that he was the leader of any syndicate. I just thought he was like an individual smuggler slash trader slash arms dealer nah, see i thought i read somewhere yeah that's what i thought too but but the rebels show has really played that down but yeah i thought i read that somewhere too huh well i didn't realize that i just kind of took him as an independent operator but what did you guys think of that i mean i think that this is an interesting character i mean he's kind of like what we got with the pirate band the the uh the weekway pirate band in clone wars but ondo yeah, Hondo. I mean, well, Hondo and his band in Clone Wars. But I I don't know. I kind of like Visago. I think he's kind of snarky, which with this group is always a positive thing. I'm glad you mentioned Hondo because, like, that was one of the things that kind of made me sad about the series is I feel like Hondo would have been perfect in Visago's place. Like, why have a new character? Why make a new character design when you could just have Hondo? He would be perfect for this role. Absolutely. What if, though, what if we find out that Visago actually took over Hondo's operation? I mean, that might be an interesting twist. Or let's say maybe Visago works for Hondo. Have you guys heard the rumors? You know, there's always rumors out there, but apparently this is one that uh, was substantiated that the uh, character voice for Hondo in the Clone Wars has done some recording. Um, doesn't necessarily it's going to be me Hondo, but that would be really cool if it was. But I think what I like about Visago is that he's a villain that's kind of a businessman with honor. You know, you have the villains that 
that some heroes will deal with that have no honor. And then you have this guy that has honor. So it kind of, it's a nice villain to have in your pocket kind of guy. Like everybody wants a friend who's kind of a mobster, but won't kill you, <laughs> you know, well, uh, as long as you pay him. Hold on a second. Now character with honor. I'm kind of thinking back to droids in distress. The second time we met Visago, where they were making the deal for the disruptors and the empire kind of crashes the party and he basically takes a couple of the crates, ditches them, doesn't pay them, and just goes, you know, hopefully you'll live to uh, trade another day. And if not, ah, well. But that's yeah. different. That's different. I mean, you got the Empire coming down on your back. You got to do what you have to do. You know, he has to keep his, his business going. Honor, meaning that he hasn't sold them out to the Empire. They, you know. I think it's just because it hasn't been profitable enough for him. Oh, good point. See, I see him as a Crowley from Supernatural type. I mean, when when Ezra made the deal, basically selling Kanan to him for services rendered, it was like, oh, this is going to get bad and ugly. And we're going to see another side of uh, Visago show up later in next season, I think. He makes an interesting, I guess, sort of a, a character motivation piece. So far, we haven't got a chance to learn a whole lot about him. He's sort of that stereotypical, you know, he's... The, the, the smuggler or the criminal who's going to do whatever the job requires, and that's pretty much it. And if you got something of value, then you're a value to him. And if not, then screw you. You're out of here, right? Um, I do like the fact that the way they've set him up is he is sort of that he, – he's the criminal – but he also sees opportunities for others in some cases as a way to sort of keep them in his circles. Uh, one of the things that we learned from, at least called The Rebellion Begins, that little uh, adaptation of Spark of Rebellion that added some scenes and such to it. What we learn is that when back in Spark of Rebellion, the crew of the Ghost go out to save the Wookiees at the end of the episode, it's because they were actually supposed to meet those Wookiees earlier. They were supposed to hook up with the Wookiees because they were another of these people uh, or peoples working against the Empire and they need allies. And the reason why they even heard about the ship full of Wookiees and where it was going to be was through Visago. Visago tips them off. Then they go find the ship is empty. Oh, crap. They've been taken as slaves. And eventually when they hear about where they actually wind up, thanks to Visago sort of checking in on things, that's when the mission can then proceed in the episode itself. So it's sort of this sense of... He knows what our crew wants, what their motivations are, and he saw an opportunity to provide for them, perhaps so that he is owed a favor, very much like what we see later on. Um, but in many ways, it seems like he's sort of just sort of a, there to, to move the plot along, right? I mean, he, him now being owed a favor from a Jedi is much more a, oh, what kind of situation is that going to put Ezra in or Kanan in, more so than... What's it going to do for Visago? Visago just hasn't really got enough oomph behind him yet. Although he is the source of another of those nice little tips of the hats that they use because the blaster that he carries around is Vilmar's Revenge, named after Vilmar Gark, or Vil from the old Republic comics from the Legends continuity, who he marginally resembles, which I thought was kind of cool. The other interesting thing about Visago is we hear about him in Idiot's Array, but we don't see him because he also has a relationship with Lando and everybody's favorite Lech, As Morrigan. And Nathan, I know how much of a fan of As Morrigan you were. Are, are you hoping that we see him again? I'm really, really not hoping we ever see him or anyone like him again. He just, 
he was much more comic relief than menace in most in most respects and it's unclear watching the episode which they wanted him to be and he just for me he fell very much flat you know griping about you had to walk all this way oh shut up and go away yet another bad mark against that particular episode so i think it's safe to say that for well and for me as well that he's one of the things that didn't work for you in season one did anyone like as morgan or we all pretty much agreed that this was a character that was a missed opportunity let's say he had a definite dune, one of those brothers floating around kind of qualities to him where you wanted to kind of wash your hands just from being in the same room with him. I think that was definitely working in his favor, but not for making him a fan favorite. I knew he reminded me of somebody. It was the dune guy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he is Vladimir Harkonnen. <laughs> that, for me, brings up another character that it's interesting that they introduced him in rebels and we talked about this during idiots array lando calrissian i'm wondering where he's gonna go because i'm betting that he's coming back but again that i wasn't the biggest fan of that episode and i'm not sure how lando's gonna work in this in this set of stories you know jen you never got the opportunity to kind of weigh in on him during that episode what did you think of their introduction of lando here it was kind of cheesy. I'm I'm never really thrilled for original trilogy characters to be bouncing around with with characters like this unless it's kind of really meaningful. I felt like this was kind of silly, but I mean, Lando's a silly character, so it was kind of fun. By the end of it, it was like, you know what? I'm just going to roll with this. This is kind of goofy, but I'm kind of chuckling at some of the gags and stuff. So, I it was okay. It was a one-off. I didn't love it. But eh. Barrett, you also, unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, really couldn't weigh in on Lando. So maybe this is a good opportunity to give us your impressions of him. Now, see, when La- when Lando shows up, you know, it's a surprise that he's on Lethal. You know, we don't really know too much about Lando's backstory right now, where he's what he's doing, you know, where he's at. We finally know now, and I thought it was pretty cool of you, Jonathan, to deduce that, uh, I think you had mentioned that he doesn't have the Falcon now. or So that must mean that Han has already won the Falcon from him in the Sabacc challenge or Sabacc game, which I thought was very astute of you, and maybe that's the reason why he's on Lethal right now, trying to get his game back up or something like that. But I think what it does is it opens up the possibility of using Lando in future episodes. You know, we don't know if he's part of the rebellion or anything, but we do know that he's on Lothal. And I think that's very interesting that he's very close to this rebel cell now and that we know they're rebel. They're one cell of many. And it just opens it up for him to be used in a better storyline than what we got him for. And we all know that they're not throwing anything away. You know, they introduced him for a reason. And I'm sure in season two, We'll see what that reason was for. So I'm pretty excited about it. You know, not a particularly rememberable episode with the dog pigs or whatever you guys call them. But the puffer uh, I think pig, the puffer pigs, they they were pigs that could smell. They're dog pigs uh, that um, I guess regular pigs can smell, too. They're, they're going to open it up in the future, I think. See, I was thinking... Lando made a reference about the fact that he had tried to smuggle the puffer pig onto Lethal once before, 
And I was kind of the impression that he did it in the Falcon and couldn't come back in the Falcon and had to leave it behind. So, I mean, you know, it could go either direction, but either way, it does add that intrigue of where's the Falcon. I think it makes more sense that he already lost the Falcon. I mean, the Falcon's fast. I mean, you wouldn't... They, he could slip through Imperial entanglements with that Falcon. I don't think he has it. I think Jonathan's yeah, on to something. That means Lando's a good, I don't know. I mean, yeah, Lando's a decent pilot, but he's no Han Solo, man. I couldn't see Lando making the Kessel run in the Falcon. Not like Han. Hey, man, he flew through that second uh, Death Star pretty good. And lost the dish. <laughs> hey, but we got a cooler dish because of it, so. True, I'll give you that. The thing about Lando, though, it's it's cool to see him there. Because we've got another link to the classic trilogy. Now we have a sense of what he's doing at around this time period. We don't know what's going on with the Falcon. It opens up the mystery and all. But I think I'm with Jin in that, what was the point of having him there? Hopefully he's being seated in there for season two or season three or whatever they plan to do with the series. But to have him introduced in that episode, in those circumstances, with the asinine as Morrigan and the puffer pig... It just was a disservice in a lot of ways to the character. They made him, in a lot of ways, sort of the comic relief character that you would usually see R2 and 3POB if this was the Clone Wars. Uh, it just, it didn't work. And of all the episodes, now I, I'm not a big fan of this one, not a big fan of Fight or Flight, but we found out later that Fight or Flight at least had a point because it gives us the TIE Fighter to be used in the finale. Of the entire season of episodes, not not counting the little shorts, but the regular-sized episodes in Spark of Rebellion, the one episode that seems to have had no point, at least for season one, is the Lando episode. So it almost feels like it was an afterthought. Is Oh, look, we can get Billy D. Williams, and they just tossed him in there. Hopefully it'll mean something someday, but in the scope of this season, it is the one really sore thumb that sticks out, not just because it was a kind of a lame episode, but because it was the piece that didn't fit mark and i have been kind of having a discussion on facebook with some fans about missed opportunities in regard to lando and mark you know we had both said i think that it's really too bad that they didn't use lando or at least bring him back maybe in the season finale as maybe piloting one of those ships because mm -hmm. you said back in the idiots array episode that you always got the impression that Lando may have been involved with the Rebellion earlier than we thought, that maybe he had that kind of relationship with Hera, or at least they knew about each other, and that's why he walked into that, or why she walked into that situation without questioning him so much. I'm thinking that that was kind of a missed opportunity. Wouldn't it have been cool if he had been, maybe Chopper went back to get him and he was flying the ghost? Or something like that, you know, he and Ahsoka, or something to tie him back in that would have given a little bit more credibility to how he just kind of comes in as a general prior to the Battle of Endor, which is something that I always kind of question because here he is pretty much a stranger to the, to the rebellion cause. He sold out Han. I mean, it's not the, the, the greatest resume to, to walk in with. And they suddenly go, Hey, guess what? We're going to make you a general, general, and we're going to put you in charge of the entire fighter, you know, all the fighter wings on this attack. I'm like, wow, the, whatever Tanab was, it must have been something freaking amazing. Yeah, that one's always had me scratching my head. It seemed almost like if it wasn't him and Hera that had done something together, that maybe it was him and Fulcrum, or he had an, an angle with Fulcrum, or Fulcrum had an angle on him. There definitely seemed to be, whether he was aware of it or not, 
that he was working for the rebellion in some form or fashion, which I could actually see that being more the case where they hired Lando to fly things and he didn't even realize he was doing it at first. You know, it's not like the fifth trip in, he realizes he's smuggling demolitions in or something onto some Imperial planet. I could totally see Lando pulling that. I, I think you have something there, Jonathan, is that the missed opportunity, uh, Lando should have been Fulcrum. Lando should have been Ahsoka. He should have been flying in a, that thing. They could have used Lando for that. And I think we're going to talk about uh, Ahsoka eventually, but you're right. That's the missed opportunity there. But to be fair, if that had happened, if it had wound up that here they are getting aboard the ghost now that they've just been saved, and there's Bale, and coming down the ladder, here's Ahsoka, and oh, by the way, piloting is Lando, we would have been arguing the convenience issue. And the whole it's a small galaxy after all thing being even smaller with them not only knowing each other, but also coming together here for the finale. So it was sort of a, you know, depending on how they would have played it, almost a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situation. However, they were going to use all these characters. If they were going to bring them all back at the same time, they would have raised tackles that way, too. Unless you delay the reveal of Fulcrum and just have you know, Fulcrum contacting Lando and maybe paying Lando to, you know, do a job, fly the fly the ship or something like that. It would have been a, a good way. Because again, I know we'll get to Ahsoka in a little bit, but I still think that maybe they jumped the gun on introducing her. But we'll get there. We'll get there. But speaking of characters that they're bringing in from the original trilogy, we have a few others that this series has played upon. Besides Vader and Lando, we also get R2-D2 and C-3PO, as well as Bail Organa. And they really, they introduced, they introduced them the first regular season episode, which, if you go back to that episode, I, I was really surprised about. I didn't necessarily think that they were going to do that this soon. I knew that it made sense to introduce those characters, but wow, they, they really brought those in early well obviously they have a plan obviously Filoni has the green light to use any character from the original trilogy and from the prequel trilogy that he wants to so i don't think it's going to be shocking when we're going to see jabba and greedo and and all the people we know i mean jabba's out there so i have no doubt that we're going to probably see him and other characters so he, they have a plan of how they're releasing these characters to us and you know they started out they started out with c3po and r2d2 fan favorites you know nobody's going to hate on them and they're slowly just releasing more characters into this world of rebels and i think it's great yes he said greedo you know, Barry, you said something there that, that jumps out to me. I think we got a, a very good team that's going to give us a well-executed plan. I mean, when George was doing stuff, he was kind of like creating things as he went on the fly. And I think that coming up with an exit strategy for things as you're making it up as you go kind of gets harder. But when you've got Pablo and you've got Chi here, especially Chi, who has been lining things up for a very long time, I think he's going to be making a focus on, you know, well, we can't just bring it in to bring it in. we got to at least make sure it's serving the story and furthering the plot. See, I disagree. This felt very much like a, a bid to try to get viewers, and maybe I'm being overly cynical, but it felt to me like 
don't worry, we're not going to go too far off the rails. You know, here, here, see, there's still some characters you like that are going to make cameos in this show. Stick with us. It, it didn't, to me, that it felt like a very cheap, easy way to get people to kind of still feel like it was relevant to, to the movies. Quick fan service. Pretty much. I could see that. I could see that, though. I mean, and I think that's the, the devil you're going to play with when you're sitting here bringing anything from the OT and the pre-T into a show set between the two. I mean, you know, on one hand, you're going to be excited that, well, they're tying it all together. But on the other hand, like Nathan was saying, if, if Lando would have been Fulcrum or been on the ship with them, you'd have everybody sitting there together. And, and how convenient is that? Yeah. I think it worked well enough. I mean, it's, it felt very forced to begin with. Now that we know there was a point to it, now that all of our hopes early on about, well, I hope Bale comes back and that this somehow ties them into the rebellion, now that it turns out that that bore fruit, then I think going back and rewatching this episode as part of the season, as part of that giant whole, we're going to feel a little bit more comfortable with them being there. But at the time, yeah, it did feel like it was just sort of a, hey, look, guys, we remember the original trilogy also. Grab a couple of relatively safe characters toss them in there, and use it as a hook to Bail. Bail was the one that was really interesting to show up at the time, not so much the droids themselves, it seemed like. Um, but that's what you do when you're launching a new show, right? I made the Stargate reference. Every time you launch a new Stargate show or a new Star Trek show, grab a character from the previous incarnation of that franchise, bring him in for the first episode, use that as our touch point to get to know the people who are going to star in this new series, and go. They do that constantly, it seems like, within... Uh, sci-fi franchises here. Now, let's talk about Bale for a minute, because I'll tell you, there's one thing that kind of struck me. I've been re-watching all the episodes, but at the end of Droids in Distress, where Bale, you know, pays off Kanan for returning R2-D2 and C-3PO, and Kanan doesn't recognize him, I found myself wondering, I mean, I thought Bale was a pretty well-known senator. I thought he was, you know, one of the faces of the Republic. And, you know, now mm -hmm. he's a supporter of the Empire. Again, I may be going back to Legends continuity a little bit. But I'm kind of surprised that Kanan didn't know who he was. See, not me. I, you know, what did Filoni call him? He called him the Cowboy Jedi. Cowboys, usually they're not sitting there checking their email, checking the Holonet feeds or news. They're out camping somewhere in the woods. They don't have time for that. Kanan is definitely a guy who does not have time to be caught up in politics. I think once the order fell and, and he survived Order 66, he dug in and he didn't stick his nose into those kind of things. So I, for me, him not recognizing a political person... That to me seems like something like with me. It's like, I really don't care much for politics. I mean, yeah, they affect me, but for the most part, I, I find they divide things. So I try to ignore them for the most part until they start to really affect me. And I could see Kanan doing something similar in that regard, especially with the whole wanting to lay low kind of side of himself. Yeah, that I think Mark has something there because he's he was pretty young when the Clone Wars, right? He was a war Padawan, but he was pretty young when that whole Order 66 went down. And it kind of reminds me how it's just a generational thing. It kind of reminds me how uh, I took my son and we went to go see a Laker game and they were retiring Shaquille O'Neal's jersey. And I said to him, hey, you know, we're going to go see Shaquille O'Neal retire his jersey. You know who he is, right? And he says, yeah, I know who he is. He's the host of the Kids' Choice Awards. So, like, that's a generational thing. And I just think that Kanan was probably too young to know about Bale. And then after Order 66, like uh, Mark said, he he was just trying to survive. But he was a Padawan of Depa Balaba on Coruscant. And, I mean, was I would assume 
that they would, as part of their training, at least be aware of the different, you know, factions and, and government that the Jedi Order supposedly serves. I mean, Bale was on the Loyalist Committee. He was, he was a name. And, okay, hold on. This kind of brings something up. How, as far as age goes, how, is there a lot of difference in age between Ahsoka and Kanan? How old? I mean, I know Ahsoka's in her early 30s, but I got the impression like Kanan was maybe in his, what, late 20s? 25, 27, I think. I can give you an actual answer. Uh, Kanan's 28. Yeah, well, if you, if you go back and you think about when they were Padawans, right, Ahsoka was 14 when the Clone Wars began. And apparently, Kanan was 14 when the Clone Wars was ending, so there's only about a three-year age difference between the two. They probably should have recognized each other, or at least he should have yeah. recognized her. Yeah, that's the one that, that, to me, was the more surprising. I mean, she was the Padawan of the Chosen One. That would have been something you'd seen around the temple. I mean, when you think about uh, the Senate, for example, what Jedi did we see at the Senate? We saw high council members. We never saw any random Jedi there. So, you know, it kind of gave me the impression that only the high masters were the ones that were really paying attention to what was going with the politics, that the rest of the Jedi had more pressing things at, at hand. You can also think, as far as Bale, at least couple things. One, we don't know to what degree in this continuity now he was actively working against or speaking out against the Empire while in the Senate. He more than likely wasn't trying to draw a lot of attention to himself so as not to, you know, get killed. Would explain why he doesn't reveal his name to them when they first meet back in Droids in Distress. Uh, so in that sense, maybe he's sort of lowered in stature a little bit, or if nothing else, he's sort of keeping his nose clean so whenever it the time comes for people to think about, well, who would be helping rebels? He's not a name that pops up on the list, um, which is the second aspect of it, the context of it. Great moment in the recent uh, series, Powers, based on the comic series, when talking about the idea of superheroes, you know, no one ever recognized you as a hero. Like, all you did was put a mask over the bottom half of your face. How does that happen? Well, it's context, right? No one expects the guy who's doing his laundry at the laundromat next door to be the same guy that's wearing a mask and flying through the air. If you see the top half of the face, even if you recognize it, you're not going to make the connection. Maybe here it's just a matter of he never would have thought that Senator Bail Organa is the guy standing across from him who just happened to be the owner of these droids they wound up having. You know, it's just sort of one of those, those, well, why would he think this must be Bail Organa unless he really sees Bail Organa a lot within, again, news feeds and the like, which it doesn't seem he's one to to peruse all that much. That made some sense that he wouldn't recognize him. I, I do think it strained credulity a little bit, but it's the Ahsoka lack of recognition that seems to be the bigger one. Although it's not, mm -hmm. did he actually say, who are you? She comes down and says, my name is Ahsoka Tano. She doesn't really get a chance to have her identity questioned by Kanan. Does she, as I recall? No, not really. And I think maybe now we've gotten to that time where I know Baron's been chomping at the bit. We need to talk about Ahsoka and her introduction to Rebels. We talked a lot about it in our last regular season episode about what will Ahsoka be in the future? You know, how involved is she going to be in the Rebel series? And what impact is her presence going to have for Vader's involvement in the Rebel series. Now, I think I've been pretty vocal in my opinion that I don't necessarily think that they needed to have Ahsoka in this series, or at least in the series at this point. I think maybe it would have been, I don't know, more of a payoff 
if they had stretched out who is Fulcrum a little bit longer than just one season. I think they could have done that, and it, it would have been good. I think a, a reveal, maybe at the end of season one, Bale would have been a good reveal, but we still don't quite know who Fulcrum is. But, I mean, think about this. Now, this obviously won't happen. Imagine if they did introduce Vader, and Vader, you know, after the Inquisitor has been eliminated, Vader really takes up the hunt for Kanan and Ezra, and he corners them, and it really looks like he's going to eliminate them both, and who basically, you know, steps into the light, ignites her saber, and defends them, but Ahsoka, how cool would that have been? Well, and that still could happen, though. I mean, and that would be an excellent moment. I mean, I, I know, Jonathan, you said you, you wouldn't want her invader's story to, to take over Rebels, but I'm one. I would love to see it as a side plot. I think by having her and Vader there, it allows the opportunity for them to complete something that they didn't have. Does the series need Ahsoka then? No, but I think the saga perhaps does benefit, though, because it does do that continuing tying things together. It adds that relevance. And for those fans, like I, I'm, and I might be going on a limb here, but, but Jen, I think it, it adds to that the Clone Wars aspect of the story that we're feeling like we're missing out on because it was canceled when it was. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's kind of unfortunate, actually, because like as soon as she showed up, it's like, oh, people like I'm interested in seeing. Can, can we just follow her from now on? <laughs> but like if we don't at least get some sort of minor subplot where Ahsoka has at least like one throwdown with Darth Vader, I'm going to be really sad. I'm going to say this. This is a mistake. This is a mistake by Filoni, and it might be the first mistake that he's making. I went down to saying it wasn't going to be Ahsoka. I, I thought that there's no way they're going to bring her in. It's a mistake. Unless Vader kills her, then it's, it'll be worth it. But to bring her in and not kill her, in my opinion, is a mistake. It's, it's Clone Wars 2.0. I mean, why? Soka is much more interesting than any of the characters in Rebels. It doesn't make any sense. We want Ahsoka. We want Vader. She has to die. Or it'll be the biggest mistake he's making. Well, Barrett brings up a very good point. I mean, you know, with the Clone Wars ending the way it did, it does kind of eliminate her walking away from this one. Death does seem to be knocking at her doorstep. And Vader's going to be the one that's held in the lightsaber as it plunges through her chest. Can they kill, like an old maiden character from a show on a show for little kids though. Like, like, I don't know if this has the grit that Clone Wars did where characters were dying. Maybe they'll kind of ramp up like Clone Wars, but like, I just don't see this, this show feels so like cutesy compared to Clone Wars. It's not dark in the same way. I just don't think they would have it in them to, you know, I would love it. I just don't think they would. I think they're going to have to work towards it. I mean, I think a rise of the old masters and what they did with the Jedi master in that one was very creepy. You know, she had a zombie esque look to her and stuff and the way the inquisitor used her to bait them in. I liked it. Then I, I think about, you know, callous when he's, when he's tormenting Zeb, you know, and he talks about the things he did to Zeb's species, you know, I mean, there's angles that they're doing. I mean, yeah, it's not as in your face as the clone wars was when you're watching like, you know, hundreds of cylinders of, of newborn or not even born yet clones all dying and being winked out and no one ever addressed that, you know, I mean, but we, but we have a kiss, you know, and we slaughter somebody with a kiss. We got to cut that out. So yeah, I, I think it's going to slowly work its way up. Cause when I think about the first few seasons of the clone wars, it didn't seem as gritty as like say f- season four and season five. Does it really have to work its way up though? I mean, if we're going with the theory that each season, or at least I like to think it is, is a movie then if you watched any Disney movies lately, 
they kill people in the Disney movies. They throw heroes off cliffs. They do a lot of things in Disney movies to kill the heroes. So they, Disney has no problem killing heroes. Well, if you want to make sure that Ahsoka dies, make her a parent. Yeah, exactly, in a Disney film. Yeah, then that's the kiss of death in a Disney film. I think with bringing her in, I mean, they've got a lot of attention. They managed to hopefully bring in people who were fans of the Clone Wars who, for whatever reason, aren't fans of Rebels, whether it's not getting attached to the characters, as in Jen's case, uh, if it's people who just said, I don't like this because it's a whole new continuity. Screw it. Once you get rid of Legends, I'm gone. Maybe they'll finally come back in. It's just one of those things that opens a lot of possible doors. It's just a question of whether they're brave enough to walk through them, whether it's bringing her face-to-face with Vader to wind up killing her, having them confront each other and and go their separate ways and and have it somehow affect Vader's story arc, whatever. They just have to necessarily use it well. I feel like this is one of those few times, we certainly never got this really except maybe Maul's return in Clone Wars. We never really got an end of a season that felt like it was a game-changer, at least not in any massive sort of way. Like, it might be a game-changer for a particular character, but for something that really sort of shakes up the status quo of the entire thing, we never really got that until either Maul or you could say Ahsoka walking away, but that was originally intended to be sort of an end of the series uh, whenever they didn't think they were going to be able to produce anything for what became season six for Netflix and all. Here, this reminds me in a lot of ways, again, going to another Disney property, if you take Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., of course, is tying in not just to itself, but tying into the Marvel films, the cinematic universe that apparently they're building around Star Wars now. And as soon as you reach the point where that series crossed over with Captain America the Winter Soldier and the whole thing with Hydra and S.H.I.E.L.D., all hell broke loose and the entire status quo and what we thought we knew about that series was out the window. Everything was on the table all of a sudden. And you didn't know who was going to live, who was going to die, who was good, who was bad. You had a real shakeup of things. And I feel like, granted, this wasn't mid-season. This was a season finale. But what we got with Fire Across the Galaxy and Ahsoka's return, Bale's involvement, then becoming part of a bigger operation and so on, the death of the Inquisitor, the arrival of Vader, this could be that kind of status quo shaker. If this was Clone Wars, I would not expect us to begin next season with anything really even building off of this, let alone something that takes advantage of how the status quo may have really changed. But with Rebels, maybe. If they really are building this as Volume 1, as iTunes calls it, with Volume 2 being next season, her appearance here could be like dropping a bomb onto what we expect. And that would be incredible. Now it's a question of whether they're actually going to do it, which I guess we'll find out for those folks who wind up seeing the couple premiere episodes at Celebration Anaheim. Well, I want to know, Jonathan, uh, do you think it's a mistake that they brought in Ahsoka? I mean, without killing her? Keep her around? Like I said, I think she's much more interesting than any of these characters, and I think that'd be a detriment. So uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's sort of a dangerous game that they're playing. They want us to invest in these new characters. They want us to invest in Ezra and Kanan and Hera and the rest. And yet they bring in this character that a lot of people already have some type of connection to. I'm, I tend to think that the best thing they could do for this new series is to kill her. I think it would be that kind of that resolution that we need for her character arc. Because otherwise, 
you know, what has she been doing? What was she doing, you know, all of the rebellion? At this point, they've kind of established that she was part of at least the early rebellion. So you can't have her really just walking away from that. I just don't, I don't see that as part of her character. And since we don't see her in the original trilogy at all, I think her fate is kind of sealed. I like the fact, though, that way a long time ago, a year a year ago, when we got the first promo images of Rebels, and you had that one blogger sitting in his basement, right? He zoomed in real close, and he was like, that's Ahsoka flying the Rebel ship. It was Ahsoka flying the Rebel ship at the end. And it, it was right there in front of our face the whole time. I, I love that. Again, my real hope is that they don't use the character of Ahsoka, or they don't overuse the character of Ahsoka in Rebels. If you're going to use her, make it meaningful. Don't have her, you know, constantly dropping in and out. I, I just, I think that would be a huge mistake. Again, I think I'm pretty open in saying that I was surprised and maybe a little disappointed that they introduced her when they did. I didn't think they needed to do that. And we talked about this in our season finale episode that, you know, my son thought that it could have easily been Ephraim or Mira Bridger. And for me, the more I think about it, the more that would have been more meaningful. I think that would have felt better than Bale being Fulcrum or Leia being Fulcrum. I mean, having this, this other character, because we knew that they were speaking against the Empire, who would have made more sense in a lot of ways to be that sort of person who is trying to really organize resistance to the Empire, especially in regards to Lothal? Wouldn't that then just make them like the most jerk parents ever to just be like, well, we got captured, we escaped, and sorry, Ezra, <laughs> like, you're on your own. They're the I mean, Parkers. Like, would, it gets such, like, an unsympathetic pair of characters then. Unless they didn't know where he was up till the point where he hooked up with a ghost crew. Yeah, don't bother looking for the kid that you raised on Lothal and abandoned on Lothal on, you know, Lothal, especially not in Capital City, you know, the city you, you know, lived in with him when he's apparently living blocks away where he can reach your old home on foot or anything like that. But remember, um, Ezra was also, I mean, he was he was a street urchin. He was, the Empire couldn't catch him. The Empire couldn't find him. There's, n you know, we don't know the situation with Ephraim and Mira. And, you know, while, we, while we're discussing them, I don't think one or both of them are dead. I think at least one of them is still alive. What about you guys? One thing that gets me, you, you comment about how this, maybe they should have been Fulcrum, one of them. And at the time when you first said it, or when your child first said it, I remember thinking, that's awesome. It's, I like the fact that it was Ahsoka, but it would have been awesome to have them in there. And then the more I think about it, how cheap would that have been, though, to have this whole story arc and character development around Ezra be built almost entirely outside of the, the Jedi bits? built around this idea of his abandonment, his unwillingness to join a group once he is part of it, his unwillingness to lose them and not wanting to risk them, etc., etc., only to wind up pulling the, hey, look, it's your mom and dad, in the season finale. You would have just absolutely cut off that part of the character development for him that was such an intriguing part of the character, one of the really few things that really draws people into Ezra as 
sort of a human being in this series. Why in that that early? I mean, we talk about, well, maybe bringing in Ahsoka was premature, or maybe bringing in Vader was premature. Both of those, not nearly as bad, I think, as cutting off Ezra's abandonment issues and psychological development. Again, again, Nathan, that would be bad unless they bring the parents in and then Vader kills them. The only way it works is if whoever just got brought in as Fulcrum dies. Uh, that's the only way that works. It was mentioned that the voices that Ezra hear when he's knocked out is his mother telling him to get up. Yes, Baron. The final episode, and I didn't pick this up necessarily the first viewing or even the second, but when Ezra has been knocked out by the Inquisitor and the Inquisitor and Kanan are dueling, Ezra is regaining consciousness and he hears a bunch of different voices calling his name. And one of the voices that he hears is his mother. But that doesn't have to be that she's alive. That doesn't even have to be like a force connection or something. That could very easily just be like memories and things in his head because he hears the same voices when he's in his old home and looking around. He hears the voices of his parents, which was assumed to just be memory, but he reacts as if he's actually hearing them. I'm not disputing that, Nathan, but what I'm saying is that I don't believe that they're gone, especially because it was, well, Hera knows what happened to them and she hasn't said yet right and she even said you know but they're not or whatever so yeah I'm, I'm with you on the idea that they're not dead i just i don't think that necessarily we can draw too much on what's happening when we hear the voices as cool as it is because we don't have an explanation hey we what was it that yoda when he was showing up as a voice said uh, uh ask not how no definitely but let's remember something in that same final episode the Inquisitor is asking Kanan who Fulcrum is. The Empire knows about Fulcrum. They may not know exactly who he or she, in this case, she is, but they're searching for her. They know about her. They want to find her and deal with her. So, you know, going back to why didn't Ezra, if, it, if, if Fulcrum was to be Ezra's parents, why they didn't, you know, go after Ezra, I mean, if the Empire's chasing you, what's the last thing in the world you want to do? Bring them to where they can get at your child. See, when we saw it, we watched it with the closed captioning on, so we knew right away that it was mom. It was one of those things where I was starting to question, you know, was it a Force ghost angle? Was it his mom has passed away? You know, is she the Force-sensitive one and his dad's still alive? I mean, anytime we have questions like that in the new canon, I have to kind of just sit back and wait for more stuff because... It could go any direction. I took it as is a force ghost that the you know she Ezra has to get it from somewhere, right? So why not his mom? Why I, I hear that what you're what you said, Nathan, about he did hear voices when they were in the house, but I may kind of took that as a different thing because he was conscious and maybe being in his house kind of triggered different memories. This is a whole different thing. He was knocked out. And you heard his mother say, get up, get up. He's not hallucinating to himself while he's unconscious. So I think there might be a force angle here that we just haven't seen yet. No, Baron, the voices, that's called schizophrenia. Even when you're knocked out, the voice is telling you get up after you've been getting your butt kicked? I don't know. It's That it, hasn't been documented, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so what do you think about that? I mean, he was knocked out. He was knocked out. I mean... 
You can't hallucinate to yourself when you're unconscious. Well, possibly he was regaining consciousness when he was hearing the voices. But, you know, you keep saying force ghost, force ghost, force ghost. I think it's been somewhat established that not every force-sensitive individual can become a force ghost. Maybe not force ghosts, but let me put it this way. They are able to sense and communicate, right, with other force users. If they were force sensitive, if they are dead, and if somehow they apparently got that specialized training that Qui-Gon had to have to eventually pass along to Yoda and all that kind of stuff with the priestesses. Because it's not even just established if you were a force user and die, you don't necessarily become a ghost you also don't necessarily get to retain your essence and have any kind of spiritual communication in the Force without Qui-Gon-esque training. That's why Yoda was freaked the heck out about it back at the end of what became Season 6 of The Clone Wars. Yeah, you threw a wrench in that one. I didn't even think about that angle in the new canon. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost can't be a Force ghost in that regard. <laughs> well, I heard, so what you're saying, Nathan, is it's possible. <laughs> Now, speaking of hearing voices, though, uh, one of the other big cameos that we got, granted not visually, but auditorily, was Frank Oz returning as Yoda back in Path of the Jedi. That was actually pretty controversial, more controversial than I expected it to be because of you know, whether it was a necessary use in trying to explain how it was that he was able to communicate with Kanan and so forth. We talk through our ideas of why that might be the case, but that was when that line was uttered about, you know, be not concerned or whatever it is with how. Uh, what about Yoda? I liked it, and I really didn't see that there was a huge... I don't know why so many people got bent out of shape about that, because I felt that, I don't know, it seemed very reasonable that Yoda would be able to reach out and contact other Jedi, especially considering he was getting that well, we assume that additional training from Qui-Gon on Dagobah. And he, I mean, it's not like he was able to reach out to Kanan and Ezra, wherever they happen to be. They had to be in that Jedi temple on Lothal, a place that was strong with the Force and acted possibly as an amplifier. That would have to be the only case. Otherwise, it's a big failure on Yoda's part. It's like if, if he had the ability to, to communicate with any Jedi across the distances through the Force, why wasn't he doing it? Why weren't he and Obi-Wan having more confabs and things of that nature? Why weren't the Jedi planning to strike back? I mean, yeah, I, I think the temple has to be the key there because for me, when Yoda showed up, it was, it was okay. Is Yoda following them? I mean, how does Yoda know about them? Or is it because they just showed up in this temple that he's able to pick up on them? I mean, is it even Yoda or is it the force in the temple itself using Yoda's voice to communicate through him, even though, you know, that wouldn't necessarily be the best way to go about it? I don't know. There were so many angles of what could be going on there that I think that's probably where you get most of the backlash is because a lot of people, they just didn't understand what was going on. Well, you know, Mark, to your thing, you know, was he watching them? I think it's fully possible that he was watching them, but watching them and being able to communicate are two different things. I mean, Yoda was watching Luke. He says that, you know, this one a long time have I watched. True. So he, you know, th th that is something that has already been established he can do. But as far as communicating, well, no, I think, as I said, that temple had to be some sort of antenna or amplifier. Jen, since you weren't here to actually comment on that episode, as I recall. 
I have a really hard time with the like cell tower boosting kind of concept of the temple. Like, like is Yoda sitting there with like some sort of dashboard system where like it lights up? Like, we did it, you know, alert mm, this person's more over bars here. Do I need? <laughs> that's exactly that's what it feels like. Where it's like, oh, I have reception here. Like, and I feel like that doesn't work because then wouldn't the more experienced Jedi, like you know, Obi Wan, be? aware of this and be like, I just got to go into a good reception area and I can chat with Yoda and check in every once in a while. Like, I don't, I don't like that. I think it's stupid. I'm sorry. (laughs) I think we can all agree for listeners of Star Wars Beyond the Films who also listen to this, who have heard Mark and I talk about Star Wars Volume 2 that, thank goodness, at least it wasn't done the way it was done there. With Yoda uh-huh. just popping up and berating Anakin or something. <laughs> oh, not so powerful, are you? And in cutting up his own ship. What I saw about this introduction of Yoda into Rebels is Filoni, thank goodness, trying to undo the damage that Lucas has done to Yoda by kind of depowering Yoda in the prequel trilogy. You know, Yoda's supposed to be a Jedi master who's trained all of these Jedis, and he couldn't see anything in the in the in the prequel and i see this as long as as with the clone wars as him trying to rebuild yoda as this powerful master as wise that he does know what's going on he he can communicate if he wants to and and another thing i noticed about frank oz coming back to voice yoda was how well tom kane did a job how well a job tom kane did voicing yoda because I could really not tell the difference. I mean, I, I listened to some of Tom Kane's stuff and then listened to uh, Frank Oz, and it was pretty much spot on. So bravo to Tom Kane. That's all I wanted to say. Now, I'm assuming we can't really deal too much with spoilers of other material here, uh, but suffice to say, there is an explanation now for why Yoda and the other Jedi seem so clueless and why the dark side clouds everything, particularly when they're at the Jedi Temple that is found in the pages of Tarkin. We discuss it at length in the episode that will be released in this feed also soon. Um, I think it's 167 of Star Wars Beyond the Films that will be released here. But suffice to say, at least they gave an explanation. The new canon is making it a point to try to rehabilitate that concept, it seems like. Speaking of the new canon, though, one of the other characters to jump out of this series that... I don't think anybody really expected to catch on as much as he has, is Zare Leonis, the young cadet who's there with Dev Morgan, right, the alias of Ezra when he's there trying to get information inside the Imperial Academy. And he's got his own little spinoff book series now, Servants of the Empire. He's already got a second book out now, Rebel in the Ranks. So now we've seen the origin, essentially, of Zare, what happens with his sister, at least from his angle, the mystery of what's happened to his sister, leading into the season or so, and now the second book has taken us through the episode Breaking Ranks. We now know why it is that he wants to go to Arcanus, why that's actually part of his plan instead of him just being shipped off. We know a little bit more about what happened with his sister and why she was probably disappearing the way that she did. And there's still more books to come, probably taking us all the way through his appearance in Vision of Hope and Onward, which is pretty cool. He's, he's got his own little spin-off series and becoming kind of a star in his own right. I, I don't think that outside of those who knew the books were coming, 
folks would have expected a character of the series that wasn't part of that main crew to get their own spinoffs. Yeah, he's almost like the first EU character or something like that, you know? He had the book before he was even in the show. <laughs> uh, so, now, does it actually say what happened to the sister? Because I've got some some serious theories going on in my head there of multiple angles that could be going down with her and the Empire and why she left slash disappeared. Did they actually spell it out in that second one? Well, I know Jonathan and Mark, you two are going to be reading it soon, hopefully, so that we can cover both of those books on the other show. Suffice to say, it's not like they give a 100% answer, but the evidence is building as to what happened and why it happened. It's not confirmed, but it's a, it's a heavy, heavy suspicion, enough so that it's guiding Zare's actions after, uh, or, or actually right around the time that we're reaching the end of the episode breaking ranks. So okay, kind of a yes well, and no, enough in, intrigue to lead to a third book in the series, basically. Well, I'll keep my theories then a little close to myself, but... I definitely think whatever's going on with Zare, it has to do with something about Ezra's name. I mean, they've gone out of their way to have Ezra not say his name to Zare. And I think sooner or later, when the reveal comes, Zare's going to be in a position where knowing that name is going to be one of those positions where he either defends his friends or he defends the Empire and he turns the other one in. Uh, you know, I mean, there's going to be some kind of conflict there because, I mean, they really went out of their way to have that big moment around, well, my name's not actually, and then all those stormtroopers showed up, and he never got to tell him that his name wasn't what Zare thought it was. So one other thing that this series has introduced into the Star Wars mythos is another planet that seems to be a hub of activity, both rebel and imperial. We get introduced to the world of Lothal, where most of our action takes place, and lots of different locations on Lothal. It's not just a sort of a one-note world, which I kind of appreciate, but I know, Nathan, that you really love the name of the capital of Lothal, but everybody else, what do you think of this as a new location for Star Wars Adventures? I guess I was kind of hoping it wouldn't be so focused on Lothal. I feel like Lothal is this really small kind of backwater area, and I I thought maybe maybe it's just that I'm, I had a conception and it's not playing out as I wanted it to. I figured... You know, they have this ship and it has hyperdrive and everything that they would be kind of bouncing around doing stuff on different worlds. And I get that that's very expensive as far as, you know, design and things like that. But I feel like there would be ways to make that inexpensive. But I feel like they just sit on Lothal and I can't really understand why. I don't feel like they do a whole lot there. And, and maybe Lothal's mining is like a really important part of, you know, maybe building the Death Star, maybe that's what they're mining for, um, is, is ore for that. But, like, they, they don't go into it, so I don't feel like Lothal is important, it's just Ezra was there, and now they just hang out there. Yeah, absolutely. That that question of what is important about this planet, you know, whether it be those materials, or maybe it's, like, at a key location on one of the trade routes or something, but give us a reason. So far, we're just kind of guessing, and I think guessing and sitting on Lothal, and you're just kind of like, what is it about this place? Let's just get the heck out of here. Let's go. Come on. Why are we sitting here? Uh, you know, the Jedi Temple being on there was weird enough. I was like, oh, how convenient is that? I mean, without that, it, there is a little bit of incredulity here. Well, you could make the argument, though, that this is a lot like Tatooine, right? Where, you know, there's this sort of almost like a nexus here. It's even talked about just this part of the galaxy is talked about in the Tarkin novel about how you know Tarkin and Vader and, and Palpatine all tend to come from this same little sort of slice of the galaxy 
you know, you narrow that down even more, Tatooine keeps popping up within the saga. Maybe Lothal is sort of a new version of that within the saga. It's going to be a recurring place of importance for one reason or another. Granted, for such an important place, or at least important to this series, their naming, as Jonathan mentioned, is kind of idiotic, Capital City. But turns out that it's idiotic across the board because we've got West Hills, East Hills, uh, basically just about every location on the planet is named by its either compass direction or what it would be called in the legend of a map, not actually much of a name, which is just bizarre. Coolest thing about Lothal to me, though, and I don't think it's ever been something we talked about on the show, is something that shows up in the visual guide, and that is that Lothal has its own calendar. The very first calendar we got for this new continuity, because this is even before they were using the BBY, ABY stuff tying into this series because they were transitioning into Disney and everything. It was kind of up in the air at that point. But there's actually a thing called the Lothal year. The year 3277 is basically the year of A New Hope on Lothal. And there's all these dates that we get in the visual guide, not based on the date of A New Hope, but based on this Lothal year, as it's called, which I thought was, you know, it's a nice touch. They're, oddly enough, they're fleshing that out, not so much the city names. I'm wondering if, in season two, we're going to be so centered on Lothal. I'm thinking that there's going to be a lot of imperial pressure on this world now, and I think that our heroes are going to have to kind of expand themselves a little bit and maybe go other places. They've also connected with other rebel cells. There's going to be at least other missions going other places. So I'm thinking we're going to see our environment grow a bit. So maybe, Jen, that'll satisfy some of your requirements. Another big introduction, and almost like another character, or two other characters, in this series are the Ghost and the Phantom. And in my opinion, I don't think that we have had as interesting a ship since the Millennium Falcon. This this ship is really almost the the grounding point for our heroes. They're always involved in it, and it's a very interesting, interesting ship. It was first introduced in Spark of Rebellion, and it's it's pre- a pretty dynamic thing. And I'm I I personally can't wait for them to do a cross section or maybe some blueprints of this ship because I'm really interested in in what this what this thing contains. I can add on to the comment there and then let the others delve into it because it's something that I've been sort of scratching my head over. Do you think that I mean as much characterization as we've sort of gotten of the ship here and how much they focused on it in the guides and in the promotion of the show? Does it seem as though this is maybe Filoni partially making up for not being able to pull this off with the Twilight back in the Clone Wars? Because it seemed like the Twilight was supposed to be this kind of ship for Clone Wars, and it just never materialized, and it almost went unnoticed until Obi-Wan borrows it and gets it blown up. Well, and on top of that with the Twilight, we saw it go crashing onto Tatooine, and we never saw him remove the ship from Tatooine, and suddenly they were flying it again. So, I mean, there was a lot of mysteries with that ship. I think the coolest thing, though, about the Ghost and the Phantom, and it was one of the things that we, as we did the show, was we came to understand was how the Phantom docked with it. Because we'd see it dock from the front, we'd see it dock from the rear, and it was just like, what in the heck is 
going on with this by ship it's swinging both ways and then we found out sure enough it did it didn't matter and i thought that that was a cool innovation in and of itself that if you were on the fly and you were running for your life in that shuttle trying to get back to the ghost you could dock without having to spin around and be uh, port to port you could go in through the floor hatch in through the main ship and the way that they even showed that through the angles from the hall, uh, or I mean, the, the hallway down below, you could see the ladder going up when it was docked in that direction, or when they were doing the diagnostics on the ship, and you could see out through the cockpit window, and you could see that it was still seeing out into space. I mean, the fact that that wasn't readily apparent, but it was something that we discovered as we went along throughout season one, I thought that was a really interesting way to do that with the ship, and added to the feeling of it being a character in its own right. No, no, the, the ghost, that ship is cool. Okay, the ghost is cooler than Freddie ja- Freddy Jackson sipping a milkshake in a snowstorm. Okay, the ship is cool. I would say that the ghost was partly the reason why I stuck around to find out if I like these guys or not. It really does give you a feel of original trilogy Star Wars. It does give you a feel of the Millennium Falcon without you saying, oh, this is a ripoff of the Millennium Falcon. No, this thing is its own beast. It's its own character. It's, its, it's got its own feel to it, but it's a familiar feel, and that's why we like it. It's really cool. They, they really hit it out of the park with the ghost. It reminds me of the Serenity from, um, from Firefly, and yes. because it's kind of like We've made Firefly references before, but like it's kind of, it's not like in great shape. It's not like the Millennium Falcon where it's huge. It's like this small enclosed area. It's got these like corridors where you have to climb up and down, almost like a submarine. And it's kind of small and a little bit claustrophobic in some ways. And it, it's kind of fun, maybe just because it reminds me of, <laughs> of Firefly. Well, Jen, you know, it's interesting that you bring up not in that good a shape because I don't get that impression at all. In fact, I get the impression that this ship is in far better shape than the Falcon has ever been. That, I mean, we don't see this thing breaking down. We see it really be able to take kind of a pounding and in some ways be more of a effective offensive weapon than we even saw the Falcon being, short of the Battle of Endor. There's no way the Falcon is taking on several Star Destroyers, okay? And not even the Falcon, it's the Phantom, that was that was going after the Star Destroyers. So even the Phantom is a better offensive weapon than the Falcon. But Jen, you nailed it. I mean, that Serenity comment, I mean, that was something that first came up to my mind. I bit my tongue on it. But this whole show has always brought that back for me. I mean, the, the feeling of the characters, they all have that same type of vibe. That was a show that I absolutely loved. And the space angles from it were one of the ones that I really got the kick out of the most, the way the ship would maneuver and that kind of stuff. So seeing you know this ship having that kind of similarity is really cool. You know, I've never watched that show. You guys uh, recommend that? Oh, dude, it is one season. It got canceled and then a movie. That's all you have to watch, and it is awesome. You'll be so oh. sad when you get to the end of the, the one little short season. Now, we've all talked a lot about, you know, what we've liked and what we haven't liked. And so now I'm going to make you guys go on the record and tell me what your favorite episode of the season was and what your least favorite episode of the season was. And, Mark, I think I'm going to grill you first. Ooh, it's tough with the last one. I really enjoyed that one a lot, but I still am going to have to say that Rise of the Old Masters is probably my favorite. I love the way that they tied that into the Clone Wars, and they they added an element to the Inquisitor that made me think, holy cow. Uh, You know, there were moments in that episode where I was like, I don't know if either one of these two Jedi here are going to make it throughout this series. Uh, You know, and I think that that for me was probably one of those defining moments that I enjoy the most. I mean, you know, I say I love the New Jedi Order because for the first time it felt like everyone was at stake. And 
That's what that episode did for me. It made me feel like even Kanan or Ezra himself could die. Maybe that was the reason why Ezra wasn't on any Subway Kids meals. And what about your least favorite? Ooh, least favorite. I'm that that's rougher because I mean I feel like I'm cheapening out and just going with Puffer Pig. But I actually enjoyed that one for the most part. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna have to go with that because it did have the more cheese tastic elements of the first season. But again, for me, I enjoyed it much more than say Nathan did. So I mean, I guess that's saying something. Jen, what about you? What what was I know you were not a fan or as much of a fan of this series as maybe the rest of us are, but I mean, if you had to pick a an episode you really liked, could you narrow it down? I actually really liked the last episode. I feel like it was it, it drew me back in. I, I was really kind of wondering if I wanted to stick with this series getting kind of further along because I felt like it really wasn't going anywhere in a way that I could see. Um, but when they got to the last episode, I feel like it, it kind of tied things back in and it did some interesting stuff with, with Kanan and I'm interesting to see it, just to see where he goes from here. I feel like he kind of has had some sort of breakthrough with his own philosophy and, and he's also gotten kind of reminded of, of a weak point where the, the Inquisitor was kind of jabbing him about his master and, and running away and I'm, I'm intrigued by that. And and I really, like I said before, I really want to see Ahsoka throw down with Darth Vader. As far as least favorite episode, I think it was probably Vision of Hope. I know you guys didn't see it coming. I, from the first time that guy showed up, not even in the episode, I was really questioning him and was wondering, like, how on earth, like, the that he was still being able to broadcast this information as soon as he broadcast about Luminara, like they got ambushed. Like I felt like this guy was seedy from the get go. So that particular episode was like really irritating to me because I was just waiting for the reveal and kind of cringing at Ezra being so stupid. <laughs> um, it was just not my favorite at all. Barrent, what about you? I know you, uh, always have very strong opinions on what you like and what you don't. So tell us, which episode really spoke to you? Well, obviously, it was Gathering Forces. I mean, and the reason that that episode spoke spoke to me was because that was the first episode where it actually gave me the O.S. moment. It, it had a moment of Luke, not not the Luke, I am your father moment, but maybe a... You know, we find out that something, something, I don't know. Um, I don't have another analogy, but it gave me a, a chill moment, you know, a, a Star Wars moment. And that's why that one was my favorite episode by far. I really thought Ezra and Kanan, one of them were going to die in that episode. It was how are they going to be able to defeat this Inquisitor? And he does it. And it, that that episode, I will forever remember that episode as season one to me. And my least favorite episode would be the very first one. And for the exact opposite of why my favorite episode is Gathering Forces, because that first episode did not get me engaged in any of the characters at all. It did not get me to like any of them. I mean, I liked the ship. The ghost was my favorite character to that point after the first episode. I think that Filoni and crew have done a better job as the episodes have gone along. I don't think that's arguable. But that first episode didn't do anything for me. When you say first episode, do you mean Spark of Rebellion, the the little movie, or do you mean Droids in Distress? Droids in Distress. Okay. Droids in Distress. It did not do anything for me. I mean, I, it had C-3PO and R2-D2, but I thought it was more, as Jen said, it was kind of a ploy to get people to watch. 
uh, more than anything else. And it did. It did its job. But it didn't get me involved in the characters I'm supposed to like. Uh, so that's that had to be my least favorite. Nathan. Well, favorites, uh, I would put two in there, Call to Action and then Fire Across the Galaxy. I think Fire Across the Galaxy was the most sort of rip-roaring episode that got me very excited throughout watching, sort of fist-pumping and everything and having those squee moments I talked about a couple episodes ago. But I don't think it stands well enough on its own as a favorite episode. Like, I couldn't necessarily go and just watch that without the context of the rest of it. So I would say Call to Action probably edges that out just a little bit. The menace of Tarkin putting them into that bad situation heading out of the episode. Uh, definitely a standout from the season. As for worst, probably going to surprise people and not say Idiot's Array, because as bad as the Puffer Pig was, that episode at least had some good character moments and some humor when they weren't being slapsticky and stupid. I still say that despite the fact that the TIE Fighter came back, it's fight or flight. That's the only episode in this entire season where I was actually bored while I was watching the episode, wondering when is this going to finally end? And it was, what, 22 minutes long? Uh, so definitely fight or flight for me. See, Nathan, sometimes I think we're seeing things the same way, and then you just go and say something like that. No, my favorite episode, like you, Nathan, was Call to Action. And I like that episode because it, for me, was the moment where this group really felt like it gelled. It felt like the actors got the characters. The characters felt honest. There are just moments throughout that whole episode that just, it, it, it felt Star Wars. And it, for me, it took it to another level. I'd been enjoying the series, but that pushed it sort of above and beyond for me. The moment that stands out is the moment where Kanan squares off against the Inquisitor and basically disables the door and is fully ready to sacrifice himself to save the rest of the group where in my mind he truly embraces the jedi heritage and i still i could watch that episode over and over as far as my least favorite episode it's not going to surprise anyone when i go with idiots array the puffer pig the seemingly random use of lando it was just an unrewarding episode in a season full of in my opinion good ones it just, it felt like the the odd man out. So that one didn't resonate for me. Now, that's what, looking back, we liked and disliked. What are you guys looking forward to? We've talked a lot about how we hope that there at least is a side story uh, that resolves some of the Vader, Ahsoka storylines. But what else would you like to see them do with Rebels? Where would you like to see these characters go either... Physically or emotionally. Is it cliche that I want to see Ahsoka do some kind of training to Ezra? Like, you know, we said it in the last uh, episode for that one, the Fire Across the Galaxy. I'd like to see her, you know, get him and Kanan both up to speed with their basics. You know, the, the stuff that she nailed before she became Skywalker's apprentice. You know, I don't know. Maybe that's just me reaching, but that's something I'd like to see play out. Jen, you'd like to see it get good, right? Just make it all better. No, I would like to see it have more relevance. I feel like this first season didn't have much relevance to the rest of the Star Wars universe. And at the same time, I would have been okay with that if I had felt like we were getting a lot of really good character development to build on later. And I feel like neither of those two things happened. So for me to really 
be happy for the next season. I, it's just one of those things. I would really like to either see them doing a lot of stuff involved like more deeply in the rebellion or at least just have some episodes where we kind of delve into what makes these characters tick because right now they feel very superficial to me and I know I kind of rag on the series and it's not just because I want to kind of be the negative Nancy but these characters are not getting very much in the way of development like a couple of them are but this is a very small cast and to think that we've gone through a whole season and we know really nothing about Hera and she's supposedly the leader. We don't really know anything about Sabine. We've gotten little tidbits, but we have, like, nothing on them. And we don't even really know that much about Zeb. Like, we got a tiny bit, and but we don't know, like, who he is. We just kind of know why he's there. So I want something more, either more characters or more character development or make this a little bit more relevant so that it's not tedious for me to watch. I'm hoping in season two besides more character development for our real core characters. You know, we got to know about them. Unless we know about them, how are we going to like them? When one of them finally gets offed, we want to we wanna like him. You know, we want Sabine to have her jetpack and why she doesn't have one now. But what I want to see in season two is I want them as rebels to get more into working with Bale, maybe seeing some more Inquisitors, you know, we know there's more Inquisitors out there. Let's let's see what the Sith are all about. Let's see how the Sith are getting back into the game now that uh, uh, they're in power. You know, let's see a little Emperor. Let's see a little Jabba. Let's get off Lothal. You know, let's pick Lando up and go place a box somewhere else. You know, let's let's spread our wings a little bit. You know, let's 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 do our thing here. Um, I'm, that's what I'm hoping in season two. A little Jabba. You really want to bring Stinky back? Stinky's still alive, man. Stinky might be some, uh, you know, gangster right now. Uh, he might have taken over his uncle's uh, thing on Coruscant. I mean, who knows? I mean, there's such possibilities right now that they can do that I think Stan on Lothal is just not a smart thing to do. You know, unless they tell us that the, there's kyber crystals there, and that's the reason why they, the, the Empire is so, that's what they're mining there. I mean, they're eventually going to have to do that, but they're going to have to get off Lothal and let's go see what's up with the Empire. Let's go see other planets, other settlements that the Empire have that the Rebels can foil, you know? guess in my case, it's more of a wish list rather than explanations. I think most of them are pretty straightforward. Um, I want to see another season-long tale. I think that worked out very well this time. Uh, have that be part of a season's-long plan. Give us sort of that multi-chapter, each season is a different chapter type of approach, like, say, Babylon 5 did. Uh, give us more revealed about Hera and Sabine's respective pasts, as Jen mentioned, and more of Zeb and Callus, that interaction that we got early on that never really went anywhere beyond that episode and one brief mention. Uh, give us some more Bail Organa, hopefully with young Leia, perhaps seeing how she's integrated into the Rebel activities. The obvious Ahsoka, Vader, and then Vader Tarkin, dynamics, and definitely, uh, oddly enough, more of Zaire. Thanks to the books, the character's grown on me, and I'd like to see more of that interweaving between this medium and the books, or whatever else they're going to use. And if you're going to make that kind of crossover, let's see some references and direct ties when talking about Kanan's past to the things that we're going to be seeing, or the first issue before this episode probably is released, of Kanan the Last Padawan. For me, I'd really like to see, again, like 
many of you, I want to know more about these characters. Unlike Jen, I really am interested in them. I, I want, but I, and I want to know more. I especially want to know more about Sabine's backstory. We've gotten some hints. We know that she was at the Imperial Academy. We know something happened. And I, you know, in the episode Out of Darkness, there was, there was something pretty traumatic in her past that I want to know more about. I, of course, want to know more about Zeb. And what I'm hoping for is I want to see the stakes raised. That's what I want to see. Obviously, Lothal is important to the Imperials' grand plan. We know that. Tarkin has said that. What is it? Is it that they're mining kyber crystals on Lothal? Is there something else? Why is this world so important? Why aren't they just... Why aren't the Imperials just coming in and completely subjugating the planet? Why not? I mean, what's going on there? And why? And basically, why are our heroes so locked to it? Another thing that I would like to see, and this isn't necessarily with the series, is I'd like to see some more, I don't know, support for this series. As we've talked about, there's been very little marketing support for this. For this. Uh, there's been a couple of books, toys which are impossible to find, and even advertising. They, they aren't doing too much of it. I think that they've got a quality series here. I really do. And I was serious when I said that I've been talking to some rather intense Star Wars fans and saying that you need to see this series because it really does add something to the Star Wars mythos, to my mind. And Nathan, as you said, if you're, if you're not watching it, you're missing out. But why aren't they pushing this more? Why aren't they encouraging it? You think back to 2008 when they introduced the Clone Wars. Oh my god, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing Clone Wars this or Clone Wars that. I mean, toys all over the shelves, books, magazines, sticker books, everything, just commercials. You know, you go into the, to the movie theaters and that, that lead up to the, uh, to the actual show, they, they, they'd show previews for the series. They, they were really just beating, beating us over the head. And I don't feel that the first season of Clone Wars could even hold a candle to the first season of Rebels. Well, you know, that might change, Jonathan, because as I'm looking at the, you know, they just, as this podcast will go out, the schedule for Celebration Anaheim has been out. And there's three panels for Rebels. Well, actually, there's two panels for Rebels, one with Filoni. It's Filoni Hildago, and they're going to be talking Clone Wars, but I think they're going to put a little Rebels in that. And then they have a Rebels panel, and then the premiere of Season 2 Rebels, uh, they're actually going to show two episodes. So they're going to be pushing it at Celebration, and I think that maybe Disney might have waited to see what they had on their hands before a push. But then again, it was mentioned here on the show that Disney has a habit of having their shows on maybe one or two years, you know, maybe three years, four years if we're lucky, and then they cut it off. So there might not be any room for Rebels coming up when Episode 7 and then next year and then the next year we have movies uh, – you know, maybe this is going to be our Darth Maul of the new canon. It's like they only have the two extremes, it seems like. I remember back to, not just the Clone Wars, but you think back to the Phantom Menace. You know, and I'm not a big toy collector. There was tons and tons of products coming out. There's those preview figures and everything. But I remember back to walking into our local Barnes & Noble 
in Evansville, Indiana, and there was an enormous table with nothing but piles and piles of all these tie-in materials they had released. You had a novel, you had comics, individual issues, or you could buy the trade paperback, or hey, here's a hardback version, I think there was at one point. All these different ones, plus you had, you know, the kids' journals and sticker books and just piles of stuff, and it was sort of a, an, an very much an overexposure. You know, go to Taco Bell, it's episode one stuff. And then here you've got that exact opposite where it's like, eh, it's out there. Yeah, yeah, watch it if you think about it. They're not promoting it. Heck, the new novels get more promotion than this. You look at what Marvel did with getting the license back and producing Star Wars comics. They're marketing for their Star Wars comics for Marvel, what, 10, 20 times more vocal than any kind of marketing that we get for Rebels. And yet, Rebels right now, in a sense, is kind of the flagship of what's going on until new films come out. It's really bizarre. Uh, I'd love to hear someone from Disney actually try to explain why they didn't market it. Somebody should ask during one of those panels, why didn't they market it much? Because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of logic to it. You know, it's, I've heard people try to give logical explanations for it. They always fall apart. It just really doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. Isn't this kind of similar to what happens with a lot of movies, though, where they... Disney's done this, and I know other other groups have done this as well, where they, they're not quite sure it's going to make a lot of money, and they don't really want to take a risk, and so they take like the short-term gain of like not being willing to invest anything in advertisement or anything, and they're just going to kind of throw it out there and see if anything happens. And if it blows up, then awesome, they'll rake in the money later. But if not, then they, they haven't risked anything. Like, like It's a very paranoid, very, very conservative method of of doing stuff, and I don't think it makes any actual logical sense, but they, they do it a lot. So someone thinks it's a great idea. It's like they decided that Star Wars, oh, be careful with that, it may not make any money when they just bet all that money in buying Lucasfilm on the fact that Star Wars is always a moneymaker. The other thing is, you would think that they would do anything and everything to sort of drum up interest in Star Wars as a franchise, kind of based off what you said, Nathan, or... You know, they have a new movie coming out the end of this year. It's major. And yet, because of what Abrams wants and everything else, they're not really releasing that much information about that movie. You know, we've talked about Celebration Anaheim. They're not even going to be releasing any information about the toys or the characters or anything else. They're keeping it all very, very hush-hush. And, you know, the la let's be honest... Interest in the Clone Wars had dropped off toward the end there. There weren't as many people, you know, willing to stick it out. So what they've got to be doing now is trying to drum up interest and build it so that, you know, people are just foaming at the mouth when The Force Awakens comes out. And I, I this is one of those things, we've said it before, missed opportunity. You know, it's almost, you know what it feels like? It's almost like Filoni and crew had a contract that they're just finishing out the contract almost you know they had a contract with the clone wars that got cut off and they said okay just finish finish out your contract on this new thing and once it's out there it's over you know that's what it kind of feels like to me i don't know if i go that far i mean it, it might feel like that way for disney in a sense i don't think filoni and them have that sense so it seems like they're really heavily into this and that they're carrying over the lessons that they learned from clone wars into this they talk about that in it's a video kind of about almost like a rap party type of thing that we see 
on, uh, I think it's a Blu-ray home video release of Clone Wars The Lost Missions. So you get a sense that they're really fired up about this. They really see the potential in it and love these characters. But it's almost like Disney didn't know what to do with it, what to do with this particular creative talent. This wasn't their people making animated films. This was this other entity that had already been doing it without them, right? The irony of Lucasfilm essentially creating Pixar, Pixar carrying over making its own animated films, and now all of a sudden Lucasfilm's doing it, and Disney, always a competitor with Pixar, doesn't know how to deal with that kind of competition, and when it gets brought back into their own house, they still don't know what to do with those resources. Before we round things out, folks, don't forget, there is more coming. Just because season one is done does not mean that the show is going to disappear on you. Also, you'll be hearing an episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films on Tarkin, which ties into this series, which Jonathan joined Mark and I for. We are also going to be having episodes coming up relatively soon on the books in Servants of the Empire. And, of course, the big one, our Celebration Anaheim coverage, which will be introducing that new voice into the mix of panelists here. So stay tuned. Keep your eyes on the feed. There's certainly much more to come before Season 2. So, I suppose until then, we'll catch you on the next episode. Uh, yeah, man. This has been such a great, great season to talk with Star Wars like it's the Cuban Missile Crisis with my friends. and uh, It's great, and I can't wait for the uh, summer programming uh, to come either. And uh, I will do my best uh, to all the fans and uh, to myself to bring you guys some good coverage with uh, our new voice uh, coming to the show. So it was a great season, great year, guys, and uh, we'll be talking soon. All I can look forward to next season is to be just as impressed and surprised as I was this first season. I know first season coming in, I, I was in that weird place. You know, as a fan of the EU, knowing that everything was set aside for this new stuff, I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to even be invested. And this first season captured my interest. It's got me hooked. I'm looking forward to the last Padawan to learn more about Kanan. Uh, you know, that's what I'm hoping to get with the stuff that's post Return of the Jedi. Cause so far right now, the new canon there, I'm not as interested as I am the Rebels. So, you know, kudos to Filoni and crew for definitely getting my interest in uh, keeping it. Yeah, looking forward to see what the next season brings. But before that, we'll see you guys in summer school. And I want to thank the fans for, if you're new to our show, if you came over from Beyond the Films, or if you followed us from Republic Forces Radio Network, we're thrilled to have you here, and we hope you'll stay for the ride. I also need to thank my hosts, both the ones here and the ones who have joined us throughout the season. As always, it has been a thrill and a lot of fun to talk to you guys about Star Wars. I look forward to these conversations as much as I look forward to seeing the episodes. I hope this goes on for a while because I couldn't imagine not talking to you guys weekly. But until we see you guys again, long live the Rebellion. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. 
We invite you to visit RepublicForces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved.